I'm Marty Dodson. And I'm Clay Mills. Welcome to Songtown on Songwriting. We've got an awesome guest for you today. Tia Sillers is in the Songtown studio talking to Clay. Tia is a Grammy-winning songwriter, amazing human being, and I think you're really going to love what she has to say. We'll just dive right into that with Clay, and we'll come back after that. Hello, Songtown. We have a special, a very special guest today, a Grammy award-winning hit songwriter. Credits include I Hope You Dance, Leanne Womack, Rock Song of the Year, Blue on Black, Heaven Heartache and the Power of Love by Trisha Yearwood, There's Your Trouble, The Chicks, songs recorded by Vince Gill, Alan Jackson, David Nail, John Party, and Pam Tillis. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Tia Sillers. I'd also like to add Engelbert Humperdinck and Five Finger Death Punch to that list. Just want to keep us honest. And the Five Finger Death Punch, that was with Brian May playing guitar? Yeah, yeah. So I'm one degree away from Faraday Mercury. That's what I like to say. What, I mean, you know. anywhere close to the band Queen yeah, is... Yeah, just amazing. one degree away, one degree away. That's amazing. So Tia, you were quite unique in the fact that most people in the music business come from all over and they, they venture to Nashville, people in the country music business, and they, they come to Nashville, but you are unique in that you started your career in Nashville. You started your childhood in Nashville, correct? Yes. When uh, so I was a kid, my family moved to Nashville and we moved to Green Hills. And the Green Hills is Hillsborough Road. And it's um, it's about a mile unbeknownst. I mean, everybody knows where the Bluebird Cafe is. So my place was maybe not even a mile, a half a mile from the Bluebird Cafe. And, you know, I'm a kid. I've got my bicycle. I'm bicycling all around. And we weren't allowed to cross Hillsborough Road. So we had to stay on our side of Hillsborough Road, which happened to be, you know, where the Bluebird was. And so I was biking all around and trying to suss it out and, and wishing I could cross the street to go to the crystal. Cause I mean, I love crystals. And I realized that there was this, I realized there was music playing in it, but I didn't quite understand. And for one day I was bike, biking as kids do in the back parking lot. And I saw that there's a door back there. And for some reason I put my bike down and just sort of walked into the kitchen and I had seen, I had seen songwriters outside, like smoking a cigarette with their guitars or something. And so I just walked in through the back door and it was 5.30, 6 o'clock at night. And that's where I saw my first songwriter show. And I was probably, you know, 14 years old. And I was like, what, what is this? Like, what is it? I didn't understand what it was. And so then though, I also felt like it was one of the coolest things possible. Cause I was in a bar. I mean, I was in a bar <laughs> with grownups and nobody kicked me out. And I just sat there silently. And so for some reason, Amy just let me come in the back every once in a while. And I would just go and always sit on the back lip of that, um, the Bluebird Cafe. There's this little bench back there. And that's where I first met luminaries now, people that were my mentors like Don Schlitz and Alan Shamblin. And it never occurred to me that they were actually famous songwriters. It just occurred to me of like, wow, how do I get to play this Bluebird? How do I get to sit in the round with three other guys? And I never occurred, it never, one, it never occurred to me that, that first of all, there were hardly ever women playing. Didn't did not occur to me, and also it didn't even occur to me that I was a woman. I was I was like oblivious to gender, 
And I just wanted to sit around and tell jokes in between songs and make people laugh. That just seemed to me it. And then cut to uh, years later, I'm in college and I um, am at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, but I come back and go to Vanderbilt for summer school because I wanted to finish school early. And actually I wanted to see what was this thing called Music Row and do it without my family sort of knowing. And while I was in summer school, I met another Vanderbilt student named George Dukas. And we uh, began writing songs because we were both songwriters, not because, and it never, it never came up that I was a woman and he was a man. It was more like, wow, you're a songwriter. I'm a songwriter, let's write songs. And lo and behold, he ended up getting a record deal on, and uh, we got to write a lot of songs on that record. And Richard Bennett produced it, the legendary Richard Bennett, who produced Steve Earle and, and I mean, just a fabulous, fabulous guitar player. And I had my first top uh, 10, I think it was a top 10. I don't remember what number it went to, but somewhere called Lipstick Promises, just a few years out of the gate. I mean, it was super fast. That's really cool. And the thing I like about that in Songtown, we're always telling writers to, you know, most writers are trying to write with people that already have hits. Yeah. And we're saying, no, when you start out, write with the people that are talented around you. Yeah. And that's who you move up with. And that's a perfect example of you guys were just, you know, songwriters starting out, but you had this common love of songwriting and it paid off, you know? And you know what else was really striking to me was, so my first success was with a guy. And from then on, it just never occurred to me that um, there was anything gendery or that I would ever be considered like a woman's writer or a male. You know, I I was always like, the thing that that pulled me to being a songwriter is that I could slip my skin. I mean, I couldn't sing like, like Waylon Jennings, but I could write a Waylon Jennings song. And I always, I've always said as a songwriter, I write two kinds of songs. One kind of song is to the service of the artist and the singer. Like I am truly channeling them and I want to be invisible. And the other kind of song are songs that come from my own personal inspiration that might be either solely unique to me and that still might connect to someone, but, but they're maybe the longer shot because they're, they're maybe wholly within about uh, coming from my, um, my personal, my own personal creativity. It's more like my personal experience as opposed to my skill as a songwriter. And I think that those are something as songwriters, I, sometimes I joking, I jokingly used to say one for them, one for me, one for them, one for me, or three for them, one for me. And <laughs> but I think as you become your job as a songwriter is when you start off, um, I know we've all used this quote before, but when you start off, you're all heart. And then you have to learn the skill. And while you're learning the skill, you lose the heart. And then somewhere along the way, the skill and the heart comes back. And what I love so much about how I started off writing with George is that we were all heart and we had to quickly learn skill because dang, he got a record deal. I mean, it got amped up. I was suddenly playing, he was recording, you know, with Dale Cromwell for God's sakes. And, 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 uh, oh my God, I can't, I can't believe I'm spacing out on all the brilliant legendary dudes that were playing on, on his records. Was it like Greg Morrow? Yes, all that. I mean, and who was the fabulous steel, who's the fabulous steel player? Dan Dugmore. And 
you know, I mean, it was like bad ass people instantaneously. I'm 22 years old and I'm like cats. I mean, big Nashville cats. And if that doesn't up your game, but it also makes you just go like, I want to, I want to, I want to own this and I want to, but I also want to learn as much as I can from this. I have a funny story. This is going to trip us up because it's going to slow us down, but I have a really funny story because I also think it's like one of the, the ultimate things that changed the course of my career. And that is when George and I were writing a bunch of our songs, one of the songs we wrote was Lipstick Promises and it went on to become a big hit. And there's this really cool lick, guitar lick. And it's actually my guitar lick. I mean, I was like, I actually came up with it. So, and came up with, it's not the right word. I was better at, at implementing it than George was. And so we get, I get called late at night by Richard Bennett to come in and show the band how to play the lick because George just couldn't get it right. So I am so freaking excited. And I have a, a Carmen Ghia and then with a Carmen Ghia, the trunk is in the front of the car, not the back. And I have this little crappy Yamaha, it doesn't have a case, anything, I mean, nothing. And I stick it in the trunk, I get in, get there, it's wintertime, it's freezing cold. And as I recall, it was either pouring down rain or something like that, but I pull the trunk of the 1967 Carmen Ghia up and as I'm getting the guitar out, I put my hand on the hood of the car and I slam my two left fingers, um, my two of my fingers into the trunk and I basically break them, I fracture them, right? And so then they're getting bigger, they're hurting like a crazy banshee and I, I get my guitar and I walk in there and I'm like, holy shit, I think I broke my fingers but I can't act like I broke my fingers. <laughs> and I, I, this is my shot, I gotta be, I gotta show up all on. And so I play it. I somehow miraculously play the lick. And the whole time I remember Richard staring at my hand goes, when did you do that? I went, Oh, a couple days ago. Like I couldn't even have the courage, you know, to tell him. And then Richard actually, he was so concerned after I played it, he gave me the contact of this information number of this bone specialist at Vanderbilt. And then I ended up having my hand being like in this weird traction thing for months trying to wow. keep it suspended and the very the very next week i went to go write with a guy named mark selby perhaps you've never heard of him and we rewrote the very first song we ever wrote together it's called like an old broken bone telling me the weather is about to change and what was so interesting was i could not play the guitar i couldn't press bar chords for years and it made me pivot it made me realize i either need to quit or I need to become even stronger at this other thing that people were telling me I was good at anyway, which was lyrics. So I was forced into it in a crazy way. And then I fell in love with Mark Selby, brilliant musician. And then I sort of stopped playing music, the musical instruments, because he was so freaking talented that it, it seemed like um, it was not worth the effort. And I became the lyricist I became. And I will chime in here and say that the first time I wrote with you, um, you spit out a verse of lyrics and it just came out like poetry. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like it was like you were from some other planet that was just like in tune with the lyric gods somehow, <laughs> because it it was like I was so impressed that just the rhythm of the words and and how they rolled off the tongue, things that most lyricists 
have a hard time getting. They can't get it, the musical part of it. So I, um, I will you, say that was, you, yeah. you just nailed something else. That is something that um, is a good thing for somebody who thinks of themselves as a lyricist, particularly is the rhythm of the words and you have to, and I would practice, I would be like, and then I would make words rhyme to those rhythms. And I would take classic songs and make up brand new lyrics to them and everything, just trying to teach myself the phraseology because words mean nothing if you can't sing them. Yeah. And and also, you've got to be able to, if you're a collector of words, and if you are a lyricist, like I am, I'm collecting lyrics constantly, just like other people are collecting riffs. So where lots of times, if I'm collaborating and somebody starts playing a riff, I already have something that will work for them. And I can feel that it immediately works for them because I can sing to that melody or sing the rhythm to that melody. That's awesome that you said you collect words like guitar players collect riffs mm -hmm. and I've never heard that, but that makes perfect sense. Hey, um, you said what, what you said something curious a few minutes ago about how sometimes you write for others and you channel others. Sometimes you write for yourself through personal experience. When you wrote, I hope you dance, were you channeling an artist on that or were you, was that something from your own experience? You know, it's interesting and I'm still shaky on this, you know, uh, history, history is a slippery thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> but absolutely. I was, um, I had broken up with someone and I had gone away and gone to the beach by myself. And I was gone. It was my first adult vacation and I went all by myself and my mother was incredibly concerned about me going on this trip by myself. I drove all the way down. I rented a beach house for the week. I needed to think, I needed to be clear headed. I needed to, you know, and while I was there was really when so much of I Hope You Dance came to be. Um, my mom would call me up on the phone every day to check on me. And this was right after the Dixie Chicks had there's your trouble. So my mom would go, mama, check the baby chick, chick, check, chick, check. That's how she'd start her message. And then she would say these things like, I hope he's miserable the rest of his life. I hope he wakes up in six months and realizes he'll never find anyone again. I hope it takes him a decade. You know, I mean, she would say all these, I hopes, but the wrong kind of hopes. And, um, or my not great hopes, but, but not, not what I wanted to write about. And then I was, I, I, I was at standing at the ocean. I've, I've been, I'm sure I've told the story, you've heard the story before, but I was standing in front of the ocean. I walked, it was, it, ironically, it was on that trip that I discovered how much I love to walk and hike. It was the first time I ever walked an incredible distance. I probably walked like 10 miles, 12 miles. And from then on, there was no stopping me. I was like, I, I love to walk and hike so much. And, but that was the first time I did it. And I did it accidentally. I decided to walk to the tip of the island and it turned out to be a lot further than I thought. And then I had to walk back. But while I was, I was walking out there, that's when I first thought of the, the lyric, I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean. And that to me was such a, 
pivotal line. And then I think very soon I thought of, I hope when one door closes, another door opens. And I think those two things, and when you get the choice to sit it out, I hope you dance. I think that those were these things. I hope you dance. I hope you dance. And then um, what's amazing is that I went back to Nashville and wrote with Mark Sanders. Mark Sanders, another person, professional songwriter, professional songwriter, we're two songwriters. We're just two songwriters. It's not, he's a guy, not, it's not that I'm a woman. We're not writing a woman's song. We're not writing a male song. We are writing a song, which is truly one, how songwriting should be when you're a professional songwriter. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it should be that we can all slip our skins, but, but so much. I remember crying as we were writing it. And I very seldom cry. I get, often I, I'm brought to tears, but not actually weeping. But I mean, I would, I mean, I'm very, I'm very often, I would say one out of every six or seven songs I'm brought to tears while I'm writing it because it's so, and those are the kinds of songs I'm interested in anyway. But, but yeah. so, yes, I would say, I hope you dance was largely coming out of a, a hope for my own future, hope for a future, trying to envision what the next chapter of my life was going to be. So yes, I think it was an intensely personal song. The amazing thing is that you got the inspiration while you were going through a difficult situation. And one time I heard Joni Mitchell say, if you're going through a breakup, it's not the time to write that song because you, all you'll do is write a whiny song. Yes. It, you don't have any perspective. Yeah. But you managed to write this deeply um, introspective, but per it had a lot of perspective to life. And, um, you know, so it, you didn't write the whiny breakup song. You wrote a song mm -hmm. of of hope and of future. You know what's interesting hope. about I Hope You Dance? And I, I consider myself one of the most fortunate. I'm so lucky to have written that song. Not only that it's a big hit, but it dictated my life. A number of things. My mother told me the second that song was recorded, she goes, you know, you can never be a bitch. You can never be a prima donna. You can never be a jerk. You can never drive a Mercedes SL. You can never have a big mansion with a reflection pool. You cannot have a purple toilet. You can't, you can't. You wrote, I hope you dance. You must be a down to earth person. I remember being like, going, but she's, she's right. So one, that dictated my life. And then also it, because it was so successful, it allowed me to begin thinking myself of myself as, I have to say this now, but I'm a manifester. I am a person who likes to surround themselves with people I believe in, who I, people I believe have tremendous future. I like to think about the future. I like to believe there is hope. I like to believe that we all have this inner strength to summon something better in us. I like to, I have to believe that. I cannot believe that we're actually maniacal, dark-hearted, that we would devolve, if given the right situation, that we devolve to terribly hateful people. So that, and then I love, I love, my favorite thing in life is to be proud of people. Not proud of myself. I love to be with a person and, be, and, and watch them do something amazing and be proud. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like being a songwriter is because it's, when I have a song succeed, I, it's not really me, it's, it's 
them succeed. It's like, oh my gosh, I helped this person connect with the zeitgeist of the world, you know? And so to me, I was so fortunate to have I Hope You Dance early on because even though the music business changed and, and, and creativity changed and the world changed, it was such a level of success and empowerment that it allowed me to sit there and go like, like if anybody ever asked me what I do for a living, I, I'm tempted to always say, I'm a manifester. I'm a manifester. I help people. I help people and they don't know it. And that's the other thing my favorite is I love to help people and they don't even know I'm helping them. Like to be that invisible. Well, I can, t I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I've told people in Songtown and when I first met you, lyrics were kind of a mystery to me and just watch right sitting in co-writing sessions with you over time and seeing how you put together a story and and how words just flowed and it, it was like a light bulb went off so i don't think i could have written my hits with darius where i had to carry much of the lyric mm -hmm. load i don't think i could have done that if i had not sat in all those sessions with you oh, and watched so it was sweet thank you wow wow darius are you listening <laughs> you lucky sob I didn't say that. You can edit so it. what i'm saying is you helped me and so maybe you didn't even realize at that time but i can agree that that you give a lot to the people around you and inspire people but the other thing though is i'm going to say then on the flip side one of the things i learned from you and I used to say this, do not take this wrong, Clay. I used to say, <laughs> you are an idiot savant. You have an, a laser, laser focus. When you get on a groove or a rhythm, there's no talking to you. You, you, don't, you don't say, look at that gorilla in the room that just walked in. Look, whoa, the ceiling's about to collapse. No, 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 Clay is in his own. And you helped me realize that when you lock into something musically, you've got to, you cannot, you, you've got to own that moment right then. And you can't, and that is a, that's either a learned skill or an idiot savant skill. I don't know which one it is, my friend, but, um, but, but that you didn't allow anything to distract you. And I think that the one thing that I would have to say to songwriters now is if you want to write a song, you need to turn off your freaking, freaking fucking phone. Sorry, I cussed. I guess it's I'm allowed. That's all right. Um, it's like there is no social media. There is no nothing. It is no nothing. Nothing will get in the way of anything than thinking about people commenting on something. And it's the, the, I am so glad I got to write so much of the bulk of my work without thinking of people's comments and also being distracted. I, we, we, we never had, we never had the level of distraction that we have now. And yes. I think that that's just not good for, um, for actually, we are, we are, um, I say this over and over again. If you're trying to be a songwriter, you are a creator. You're not a consumer. You're a creator. You know, YouTube is made for consumers. Now, granted, we're watching, we're creating something for consumers, mm -hmm. but we're creating something right now, you and I, even though we're creating content, we're creating something that other people hopefully will consume that are hoping to create. We're not just creating mindless consumption, right? Like this, yeah. the purpose of this podcast is 
helping people figure out how to create, not consume. And it's as long as you are passively uh, doing all these things within social media, you are a consumer. And you can, if you're a songwriter, you cannot be that consumer. You can be a consumer a couple hours a week, that's fine. But the rest of the time, the rest of the time, you have to be a creator. Whether you're writing or not, you have to be like, I, I um, am working with a number of people. I'm, I've noticed a number of people are using earbuds and they're obviously listening to podcasts and music all the time and everything. I'm like, I'm sorry, if you're listening to a podcast all the time, if you're listening to other music, you're not using your own weird, unconscious, conscious brain, silence, the space in between the chaos to create songs. And I, so as a songwriter, if you want to be a songwriter, I would say you, I, I need 50, 60 hours a week where I'm not, I'm not even writing. I'm not writing. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. I'm honing it. I'm honing it. It's like, and if I had that cacophony, if I had all the distractions of all the other podcasts, we're making a podcast. So that's meta. I know, but, but, but if, if I had the distraction of all these other podcasts of all these other um, you know, on NPR right now, they have this thing called make me smarter. And so you can go on, you can ask a question like what makes a molecule explode? And you know what? That's a great thing to want to know. You're right. You're right. And I should be smarter. Maybe that, but, but you just become a jack of all trades and an ace of none. It's like, at some point we need to pick these things we are obsessed with that are our proclivities as creators and focus on them. I believe that wholeheartedly. I, I often say that we've become a society for good or bad of the do-it-yourself uh, projects. So if you want to make your own beer, you can do that. If you want to, you know, download loops onto your computer and, you know, be a songwriter that doesn't know how to play an instrument, you can do that. You get, It's like everything's a little do-it-yourself kit. Yeah. These days. You, you can be a reporter because you have your iPhone and you can call into a news station with the video that you just took of something happening. So it's very few people, you know, are really dedicated to honing a craft at the level you need to be at. And, and that's what it takes. To and all of this new technology is so alluring because how fun would it be to catch something titillating on your phone and turn it into a news sensation but but the odds are that won't happen but if you were to perhaps dedicate yourself to being a reporter something might happen so at some point i think uh we're all barraged by so much many options that if we're not careful we end up never picking anything and um and i think the secret to life is finding two or three or four five maybe true passions, whatever they are, and whether or not you ever become successful, and I don't like that word, um, that you ever meet critical acclaim um, is irrelevant. The point is, you know, when you, when I die, when I die, I'm going to think, wow, I tried for 47 years to learn French, Spanish, and German. (laughs) Damn it, I tried, I really tried, and I still suck up them all, but I'm further along than those people are. And that's my obsession. That's one of my proclivities, you know? And uh, I've tried, I've, ever since my husband died, Moss, I have really boned up 
on guitar playing. And it's like, I want to own that more. That's my other thing, my other skill. You know, I want to, you know, so I, I think, you know. Well, I think the world deserves to hear more Tia Siller songs. And I'm so glad we got to talk to you today um, and just share your energy and your your zest for life. I read somewhere that says Tia Sillers is a badass songwriter. (laughs) I I have to agree with that. She's not a female songwriter. She's just a badass songwriter. Oh, Clay, I love you. And that was in American um, Songwriter Magazine. Gosh, Clay, thank you. And that that you just made my day because you're a badass songwriter. And once again, you're not a male songwriter. You're not you're just a badass songwriter. And that's what we want to be a badass songwriter, a gifted songwriter, a talented songwriter. As a matter of fact, when I got my Grammy, that was my favorite thing, was it just said a songwriter on it, which I just loved so much. I loved that. I was always like, I'm a songwriter. And you certainly are. Thanks again, Tia. Let's kick it over to Marty. All right, it's time for a song. We've got a fun one for you called Hella Rich. It's written by Dale Giffen, Selby Copeland, Claire Bunnick, Brittany Brandt, who's also singing, and Julia Haggerty. I think you're going to love it. I may not come from royalty, but the people I got make me feel like a queen. Mm. I can hold my own at a Michelin star, but I'm right at home in a dive bar. Yeah, I'll take a dozen roses But what you got to know is That I love my daisies from a ditch Yeah, I'm feeling a love rich The way my thrift jeans just fit When that dollar store lipstick Don't change the way I kiss Yeah, I'm feeling a love rich Rockin' that bargain bliss Don't get much better than this mm, Got me feeling, got me feeling Grandma's pearls, I wouldn't trade them for the world No, no So am I gonna throw shade Trying to dim my light But inside I shine 24 karat bright That's right Don't need pennies for a fountain The stars are there for counting So I just look up to make a wish Hey, I'm feeling it a Hello, hello, 
There you go. Hella rich. That was a lot of fun. So one of the things that Songtown members get, which a lot of websites don't give you, is you get access to the people that run the site, and you get to know who the people are, and you can ask them questions. So Clay and I have a um, forum called Ask Marty and Clay where people submit questions that uh, they have about the business or about songwriting, and we do our best to answer those. And one of those questions we get all the time, we got again this week, someone said, um, I got a song that a co-writer submitted to a publisher, and the publisher loved it, and they wanted to sign a single song contract for our song, but they only wanted to sign it with my co-writers. Why aren't they sending me a, a contract? And what we explained to them was, that's a great thing, and that usually means that the publisher is legit, because... If I go play a song for someone, you know, they're dealing with me. They're not dealing with all my co-writers. So they're not necessarily um, wanting or needing to, to sign the song with all my co-writers. And sometimes that can be kind of a greedy grab uh, in, in the country and pop world of people just kind of exploiting songwriters a little bit and trying to get all they can out of the songwriter. But if a publisher... Uh, loves your song and your your co-writer meets with that publisher and they love your song and they want to sign it they're just dealing with that co-writer's piece of the publishing which is great for the other co-writers because you don't necessarily have to sign away your part and that means you can do a couple different things with your part of the song so you could pitch the song to other publishers maybe get another publisher interested you could sign your part of the publishing to that publisher and then you have two publishers pitching the song and if you have three co-writers uh, on the song then there could be potentially three different publishers pitching that song which is awesome and that increases your chances of getting a cut and that's the way it works in the pro songwriting world so if clay and i write a song our publishers uh, are not asking for the other person's publishing we're all just out there trying to get the song cut and everybody's got a piece of it and, you know, we're working to, to exploit that piece and make that piece uh, monetized somehow. So it's a great thing if, if your co-writer gets offered a single song contract and they're not asking for your publishing. The other thing you can do with that publishing is just hang on to it. And if that publisher gets the song cut, let's say there's three writers, you know, then, then that maybe that co-writer gave up all their publishing to that publisher for the, the song. Well, you and the other co-writer who did not give up any publishing could split your publishing with the third writer and that way you've got everybody's kind of got an even stake in the song so if you face that question just always keep in the back of your mind that you don't have to sign something just because your co-writer signs it you know in the sync world it works kind of different because they need everybody all in on the song and you know that's the way that side of the business works but in country and pop and other genres you know different publishers are working the same song all the time so if you have that question no just because a co one co-writer does something with their publishing doesn't mean that the other co-writers are obligated to do that or should do that because if a publisher loves the song and they're pitching it anyway why give them two-thirds more of the publishing so I hope that was helpful. If you have more questions, you can always email me or Clay. Our emails are just marty at songtown.com or clay at songtown.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We'd love it if you checked out songtown.com. And we have a couple books. We have one on 
uh, co-writing called The Songwriter's Guide to Mastering Co-Writing and one called Song Building, Mastering Lyric Writing. And there's a new book coming out very, very soon. So thanks for joining us. Hope you learned something. Hope you were inspired. And go write your best song tomorrow.